The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, it's wonderful to see all of you on this Thanksgiving weekend. My talk this morning is on uh, self-compassion. I recently taught two classes, eight-week classes on self-compassion, and I found it, um, obviously I thought it was something important because I offered the classes, but going through this um, extended exploration with two groups of people has really deepened my appreciation and understanding of the value and importance of self-compassion as a primary practice. Matter of fact, I like it so much. I'm, after the new year, I'm going to be offering self-compassion part two. So a couple of the things. So I'm going to be sharing with you some of my... Hmm, perhaps insights or what seemed most important from teaching that. And two basic things. One is um, I I came to a deeper appreciation of how self-compassion is a, (laughs) what I might call, a fabulous opportunity to practice over and over and over again in ordinary life situations. One of my um, classes, the series of classes I offer are called Dharma and Ordinary Life, which is one of my primary interests is how does ordinary life become the ground, the uh, stimulus, the trigger, the opportunity for awakening. And I'll say more about this, the the wonderful and uh, almost endless opportunities that are present for us to deepen our capacity, to awaken our capacity for compassion. And the second thing I think I got a deeper um, appreciation of from teaching this and working more intimately with people is to the degree that our conditioned patterns of self-negation and self-rejection and a self-ignoring and self-neglect are actually fundamental obstacles to awakening and fundamental obstacles for our practice deepening. And unless these are truly addressed, that our practice will only go so far and then it will, in a sense, be blocked. When I started meditating and exploring spiritual paths in the mid-70s, I think at that time I had, I would say, I kind of had a fire in my belly about really wanting to know about freedom, wanting to know about suffering and the end of suffering, and wanting to ex- experience the true, true nature of reality. That's kind of how I would have said it then. And I would say that to some degree now, and I have learned and experienced a lot about those over these many years. But what I didn't realize when I was young and starting out that how much I was actually going to learn about love. And I would learn that the actual freedom and suffering 
end of suffering and the nature of reality are all related to love. Martin Luther King said, Unconditional love is the key to ultimate reality. Sometimes it's emphasized a little bit more in this tradition, we're called insight meditation, that mindfulness is the key to ultimate reality, and that is true as well. But I want to inform or remind people that the word mindfulness could have as legitimately and equally been translated from the Pali as heartfulness. That heart and mind are not separate and that the building of a continuity of mindfulness is also the building of a continuity of the open and kind heart. And that the Buddha talked about liberation as the sure heart's release. He didn't say particularly the mind, but the release of the heart, which is where our suffering is most often experienced. So as we practice these qualities of the heart, or we awaken these qualities of the heart, what we find is that we become reunited. Reunited with ourselves and all our aspects of self, reunited with other beings, reunited in the whole world. And that we learn this by beginning to welcome all aspects of ourselves, all parts of ourselves into our hearts. We're actually normally cut off from our totality And it's not just sort of the totality of the universe, the totality of our simple experience of being. And I would say that kindness and love and compassion are all conduits for connection, are the conduit for connection. And that any moment of kindness or love or compassion is a moment of connection. And connection in any moment dissolves separation and duality. So eventually we learn instead to, of living from our ego self, our small self, our habits, our, our um, what we might call our small defended self, we learn to actually live from this deeper quality or capacity of being, from the awakened aspect of our presence. And it's not just a matter of feeling love, it's eventually we become love. So one of the forms of, of love, you may, uh, many of you may be familiar with the Brahma Viharas, which describe the four aspects, really, of love. Um, one of the forms is compassion. And compassion, which, if you've been around this scene, <coughs> you hear a lot about Compassion. And compassion is essentially the empathy, the empathy with any being when suffering is present. 
the empathy, the tenderness of the heart when suffering is present. It is the ability to be moved or touched, to have a kind of deep, nonverbal understanding and even a kind of warmth or what I might call meaningful tenderness in the presence of suffering. And as many of you know, I hope, the first noble truth, which is variously translated, but essentially that life has suffering, and that the Buddha's quest, his essential quest, was really about what does it mean to live in a world with suffering? How do we find peace and ease and openness and freedom in a world with suffering? So our compassion becomes essential for meeting this life, meeting this life that is going to have suffering and difficulty. And the suffering we are most faced with, that is most common, that is most available, of course, is our own. So this is not, this is a starting point for this practice, and this is not just a nice idea or a good idea, but it is essential to free the heart. As one of my teachers says, we need to learn to bring compassion to the one sitting in your seat. The one sitting on your seat right now. It is the ultimate aspiration in this path or the ultimate possibility or the ultimate expression of freedom and awakening that this compassion and these qualities of the awakened heart are offered freely and equally to all beings, all sentient beings, all sentient beings who, by their nature of sentience, experience suffering. And so, again, the one that is most available is right sitting on your seat. And as Stephen still said, love the one you're with. (laughs) And that's the one you're with from birth to death. But most of us are subtly or not so subtly actually hooked in various patterns of self-rejection, various patterns of self-criticism, of um, self-negation. This part of me is okay, but that part is not. This part I can get by with, but that part I must change and prove it's not acceptable. And we go through life over and over again, and our actual spiritual path and meditation practice can become another project for self-improvement and not feeling good enough. This is from T.S. Eliot. What is the self inside us, the silent observer, severe and speechless critic, who can terrorize us and urge us on to futile activity and in the end judge us still more severely for the errors to which his own reproaches drove us? In um, working with people around compassion and self-compassion, it's pretty common for people to say, well, you know, it's actually pretty easy for me to feel compassion to others, but it's much harder to myself. And there's many reasons for that. 
One very basic reason is that we tend to treat ourselves in the way we were treated growing up. We tend to develop those habits or patterns. So if we were neglected in various ways, we may neglect ourselves. If we were um, pushed and um, in various ways, we may push ourselves in those ways. If we were not acceptable in certain ways, we continue to not accept ourselves. And I want to say that still people who feel compassion for others and not themselves at times are, when I really investigate that, we'll find that most of us, even in the compassion that we offer to others, it's very conditional. Certain beings, certain places, certain experiences, we, we're willing to offer condi- um, con- compassion, but there are many other situations where we are not willing to offer compassion to others, and that it becomes the same with ourselves. Simply put, if you do not believe, at least some of the time, if you do not believe that you deserve love, then you actually do not believe that others deserve love. Of course, sometimes you will, but there will be many, many cases with yourself and others where that will be withheld and withdrawn. The Buddha talked about loving kindness. In the Metta Sutta, if you are familiar with it, about offering it, radiating it outward so that none are excluded. This is the ultimate possibility of the freedom of the heart. If you cannot fully open to yourself, how are you going to open to the universe? So I invite you to start now, right now. And you have this moment to practice in. So each day we have moments of pain or suffering, I think, some more than others, I mean some people more than others perhaps, some days more than others, we have moments, universal human moments of loss, of disappointment, of confusion, of rejection and anger, of discomfort and physical pain, anxiety, fear, shame, guilt, inadequacy, failure, exhaustion. There may be ways we shut down, react, or feel depressed, Perhaps we judge ourselves for mistakes or don't meet expectations. Various criticisms. I don't know, do any of these sound vaguely familiar? So, guess what? Each of those, each of those arising is an opportunity to meet that with compassion. I'll be saying more about that in a few moments. Each of those arising is a moment to actually open our hearts and meet that with compassion. But many of us instead have other habits. (laughs) They are self-judgment and self-criticism. I mean, how do you respond to any of that list I just um, went through? Do you ignore it, 
override it, shut it down, reject it, criticize it, feel some disgust towards it, blame yourself or others, get depressed and angry. To make peace with the world, we make peace with all aspects of ourself. So, I want to say a little bit about the difference between self-esteem and self-compassion because those get mixed up. And we have a culture that's been obsessed with self-esteem which has actually turned out, apparently from research, rather badly. (laughs) There was, um, uh, over the last 20, 30, 40 years, a big movement towards increasing self-esteem for children and everybody. And I think the essential motivation was quite good, and maybe not even so far off from developing self-compassion, but it has gone awry a bit. And so what I'm going to be offering here is, is, is significantly different than this. It was sort of seen that self-esteem was going to cure all the ills of society. And um, California is actually notorious <laughs> for its programs for self-esteem. What happened, what, what kind of went awry, and there's again contemporary research on this if you're interested, and I, can, I will be suggesting actually a book in particular that what ended up happening was that people, not surprisingly because of the nature of our competitive and individualistic society to begin with, started to treat self-esteem as a way of um, viewing oneself in relationship better than others, viewing oneself in relationship to others at the expense of others, being better or the best at things. And it became very related, has become very related to perceived performance and competency. So that self-worth becomes dependent on um, how well we're performing, how um, competent we are, how we think others are perceiving us, whether we're good enough, whether we're significantly above average, and how this has tapped into a a profound um, need for perfection and being better and endless projects of self-improvement. Does any of this ring any bells for people? So there's often become a kind of addiction to self-esteem and being forced to strive harder and harder and accomplish more and get more and be more and be seen as um, that and then the get more praise, <laughs> fear judgment and criticism, and on and on and on. And I can really, I mean, as I was reading more of the research on this, could really see myself in this picture as well. There's a lot of research about how nobody wants to be average. <laughs> um, do you want to be average? <laughs> Do I want to be an average meditation teacher? <laughs> Do I want to have an average meditation practice? Oh no, you know, I want to have the best. <laughs> and they've um, done a lot of research that people report. I don't know if how they actually feel, but people report in all many areas of their life that they are above average. Because that's what we're 
kind of taught that we have to be to the point where there, 97% of people report that they're better than average drivers. <laughs> Which, if you know anything about statistics, is not possible. And apparently even people who recently had an accident that was their fault also reported that they are above average. Um, so I've sort of taken on this... Um, this uh, practice of being average and being okay. And what would that mean? So there actually, and the, the, the outcome, I said, of all this attempt to increase self-esteem has, in again, the research, which they've been doing for I don't know how many years, 25 years or so, the newest generation of early 20-somethings scores far highest on narcissistic scales than years ago with a general sense of entitlement and, and um, many um, of the unfortunate side effects of narcissism. Dharma itself is really the, the uh, cure for narcissism, but it looks like we have our hands full. <laughs> So this is from um, Kristen Neff, whose book I'm going to recommend. It's called Self-Compassion. Kristen Neff is a psychologist, and her area of research is self-compassion, and she happens to be a Vipassana student as well. She's also the mother in the documentary film, if any of you have seen The Horse Boy. Anybody seen that? Wonderful film. Um, This is from her. Self-compassion does not try to capture or define the worth or essence of who we are. It is not a thought or label, a judgment or an evaluation. Instead, self-compassion is a way of relating to the mystery of who we are rather than managing our self-image so that it is always palatable. How many of us are managing our self-image to be palatable all the time? Um, Self-compassion honors the fact that all human beings have both strengths and weaknesses. Rather than getting lost in thoughts of being good or bad, we become mindful of our present moment experience, realizing that it is ever-changing and impermanent. Our successes and failures come and go. They neither define us nor do they determine our worthiness. They are merely the parts of the process of being alive. Our minds may try to convince us otherwise, but our heart knows that our true value lies in the core experience of simply being a conscious being who feels and perceives. I'd like to have a little side comment as well about the difference between self and compassion and affirmations. I found that in working with people to develop a kind of an inner um, inner self-talk around self-compassion, kind tend to revert at times to affirmations. And affirmations, really, um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the process or the practice of affirmations. 
affirmations actually have their place and can have their usefulness, but they also have their limitations. In working with my classes, I found that actually a significant number of people had affirmation aversion. Um, and, uh, you know, there are these classic where you actually listed, I found online some of the classic affirmations, you know, like, it's where you say something, I am healthy, healed, and whole. All my relationships are now loving and harmonious. You kind of make a statement of how you would like yourself to be or your life to be. The problem with these, um, the, the, where affirmations can go bad <laughs> is they can really tap in again to this sense of deficiency and insufficiency that many of us carry around that I'm not okay and I should be this other way or I, life should be something other than it is. It is often a movement away from the present, what you're actually feeling, and it is a movement away from being willing to open to the full richness of your actual experience. It can turn again into the endless self-improvement cycle rather than the possibility of the profound self-acceptance, freedom. In this book, um, Kristen talks about this, what she calls, and in, in the research they work with this, with, uh, in studies and so forth, the three aspects of self-compassion, which I think are, are, are simple and basic and useful. Mindfulness, kindness, and common humanity. Mindfulness, you all should be familiar with. Mindfulness is our ability to actually be present and open and connected to what our experience is without judgment. Kindness is certainly the ability to to meet it with open-heartedness, with a kind of friendliness and curiosity. And the third one, common humanity, is really important. And this is the possibility, the uh, invitation to recognize that every moment of suffering and difficulty that we meet, as well as every moment of joy and happiness, is shared among humans. And I would say other beings as well, but certainly is part of our human experience. And returning to that as direct and simple, this is the first noble truth. Many of us, our suffering becomes an area of shame or needs to be hidden or it isolates us when actually compassion for ourselves and others becomes the link to a profound connection and openness. This is from Herman Hesse. You know quite well, deep within you, that there is only a single magic, a single power, a single salvation, and that is called loving. Well then, love your suffering. Do not resist it. Do not flee it. It is your aversion that hurts, nothing else. So in my classes, I offered a a variety of practices, forgiveness practices, um, working with different phrases, identifying our own 
our own habits of self-rejection, self-blame and self-negation and um, also a practice that actually comes from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition of working with benefactors. I'm obviously not going to go through all that today. But I would like to mm, offer you, as we end this morning, a little practice, short practice session. And I'm still deciding. I have two options here. Okay. What I'm going to um, do is, uh, some of you, many of you are familiar with um, working with phrases and the metta practice, may I be happy and so forth. This, I'm going to offer you um, some phrases working with compassion, but it's it's working similarly with how we might do metta practice. But... Often metta practice is is taught in a way where it's kind of a repetitive, almost mantra-like. And what I'm going to suggest here is that that these phrases are actually something you can offer yourself in any moment of when you find suffering. And again, I want to emphasize that what it means is we identify, we notice, we feel the ouch of suffering in some moment in our life. And instead of doing something like, you know, we feel bad or we feel criticized or we feel inadequate and that's painful, we tend to go to, again, a lot of different things. We might go to an affirmation thing like, I really am an okay person or something like that. But self-compassion is really that willingness to feel the ouch of the suffering and to merely hold it in this tenderness, to hold it in this common humanity, to hold it in the understanding that this is part of our experience. And not the necessarily the storyline of it, but the simple process, the simple experience of feeling some sort of pain in our life. So what I'd like you to do is to see if you can recall something that has happened recently. The more recent, and perhaps the more uncomfortable, the better. (laughs) Something where you have, again, felt some kind of of emotional or or physical pain. Perhaps, again, it was a moment of shame or embarrassment or moments of loss or rejection a moment of great disappointment or anxiety or fear. There's a lot of choices. 
And bringing this intention to actually bring mindfulness to this. So you're actually recalling it, you're inviting it into your mindfulness, into your presence. And I'm inviting you not so much to get caught in the story around it, but in the actual sensation, the actual feeling of it in your heart and body. I want you to... Notice, as I said, the ouch of it, the simple ouch. Tara Brock is a wonderful insight meditation teacher as well, who talks about a lot of these things. So if you are interested as well, I would invite you to follow her writing. So... If it feels good to, at this point, to to be aware of even self-contact, meaning holding your own hand or a comforting hand on your leg or even over your own heart. This is no small thing. This is no minor thing. This is an actual act of courage and freedom. So I'm going to say a few phrases here and I want you to not just listen or say them to yourself in a rote way, but I want you to actually allow the feeling of them to penetrate the best you can. And again, you may not have been able to recall a feeling or feel the ouch of it or whatever, but you're getting the basic gist of this process. So whatever the situation, the feeling, the ouch of it right now, just acknowledging first, this is a moment of suffering. This is a moment of suffering. This is the mindfulness part. Can you acknowledge that instead of flee or manipulate or try to fix or try to go away or try to improve? Can you simply be mindful? present. This is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. This is the acknowledgement of our common humanity as our common sentience with so many beings. that our profound sensitivity is the, our gift and also causes us to feel pain and suffering at times. Suffering is a part of life. This is part of our experience, all of our experience, all six, almost seven billion of us right now on this planet and of course all the billions of other creatures right now 
And then may I be kind to myself in this moment. In this moment of suffering, may I be kind to myself. May I bring that empathy and that gentle warmth. That simple acceptance and recognition. That simple understanding and openness. And may I give myself the compassion I need. May I give myself the compassion I need. Well, that's a little brief taste, but I'm um, hoping you get the sense of the simplicity of that and the difference of that from trying to be different or better or something other or... Or you might see how delicious and easy it was or you might see how hard it was, or you might feel not so connected to it. And again, I, I'm instructed to end on time, so I'm <laughs> going to do that. <laughs> I was hoping to have more question and answer, but I will be around, so I'd be happy to talk to you. Um, I am going to again put a last plug in for the actual profundity and transformational quality of beginning to make this uh, ongoing and daily practice for yourself. And I'm going to finish with a a poem by Derek Walcott, which is actually a nice poem to read also just before a potluck. (laughs) The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome. And say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows your heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photograph, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. So I'd like to dedicate this practice this morning to all beings everywhere so that all beings 
are able to open their hearts equally to self, to loved ones, to strangers, to difficult ones, so that all beings learn the true peace and freedom of presence, so that all beings find the end of suffering. Thank you, everyone. It's lovely to be here. Thank you.